0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel chapter 12. Uh, last week, we looked at we looked at the legalists, the Pharisees as they everything that Jesus was doing, they were pointing a finger at, and uh, even when he was doing things that were lawful. They would find fault. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Just everything you do, there's fault with it. And Jesus lived that way for all of his life up until the moment he was crucified. And it's an awful thing when legalism and when, when people get so strict on the, on the law that the life, the joy, everything just goes and all that's left is just a, a sourpuss and, and a face that's just all shriveled like a raisin and just, you know, no joy, no life, no grace, no mercy, no love. And it's a horrible place. And if we're not careful, we can all get into that place. And so Jesus was dealing with these scribes and Pharisees who were the legalists of their day. And now we get into um, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 12. Uh, we're going to pick up and we're really going to look at uh, verse 22. And um, let's begin there, but we're going to start off in verse 15. But right now, let's read <laughs> 22 through thirty. That'll be where we park for most of the time together. So then it says in verse 22 of chapter 12: Then one was brought to him, to Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he, Jesus, healed him, so that the blind and mute both spake and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their hearts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Lord, we thank you for this passage uh, this morning. And Father, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts to it and the other areas that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so we thank you, Lord. You are the one who guides us and leads us into all truth. By your Spirit, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the common methods in warfare of any kind is dividing and conquering. Have you heard that before? Dividing and conquering, and an adversary that is scattered and is divided is easy or easier to overcome. And this has been one of Satan's strategies from the very beginning. He attacked Eve in the garden by causing, you know, her, she, she caved in and and, and sinned and, and took of of the apple or whatever that fruit was. We call it an apple, but it could have been anything maybe a georgia peach but anyway she she took it and then she gave that to her husband and and notice the enemy he never he didn't go after adam the head the head of the home he didn't go after adam the federal head actually of mankind but he went after eve he divided and conquered he went after her first he went after the weakest link and not weak intellectually or certainly not weak in in other areas but just you know, God has called the man to be the head of the home. Not in a chauvinistic way. Any spiritual man will be very careful and be led by the Spirit. And if he does it right, his wife will gladly submit to him. It's just those guys who pound their chest like an ape and run through the house with their t-shirt. You know, there's nothing about that that is godly. God doesn't put his hand on that. But he puts his hand on men who are humbled and submitted to God. God. And serious about their walk with Him, but He comes. Satan does. He comes and He attacks. He divides and He conquers. He attacks um, individuals, couples, families, businesses, nations, and He's relentless. But if He attacks His own, He's certainly going to fall. Correct? He's not going to attack His own. He's not going to come against Himself. That would be uh, who would do that? It would be counterproductive. And yet, this is the very thing. That the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of, casting out demons by the very spirit of Satan himself. By the very spirit of Satan himself. But before we get into this uh, area of the scripture, let's back up just to verse 15 and we'll come into it. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 15, because uh, right before that, prior to that, in verse 14, it says that the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might destroy him because he was bad for business. He was doing those things that, according to the legalists, weren't right. And Jesus was like, you know, how many of you, if your sheep or, it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? And they were so stuck on regiment and so stuck on law and legalism that they wouldn't do it. He says, but wouldn't you do that if your sheep or oxen fell into the ditch on the Sabbath? How much more is a person than animals? I mean, after all, didn't God create man last, after he provided all of his support system on the earth? Didn't he do that in six days, right? He created everything for Adam, and then he finally creates the capstone of his creation. Man, you and I. And he puts us above all. He says, have dominion over it all. Over the animals, even not to torture them, but to use them for food, for agriculture, whatever you need. But they couldn't stand Jesus. They plotted to kill him. But when Jesus knew it, it says in verse fifteen, from the you know when he find out when he knew that the scribes and the Pharisees were seeking how they might kill him, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Notice that Jesus knew when it was time to withdraw. He knew when it was time to go. Certainly this hour, his hour, had not come yet. But by engaging with the Pharisees in a confrontational kind of way... It might probably, it's very probable that it would cause his followers to engage as well. Do you follow me? If Jesus got in the flesh and was getting all anxious and angry and, and starting a battle, his followers are going to come and they're going to do the very same thing. But such a display would get Rome's attention and potentially it would cause a physical conflict between them, the Jews, and Rome. And Rome was much more powerful in the military. Many lives will be lost in the process. And so the very lives that Jesus came to save would be lost. Even on the Roman side. Did Jesus love the Romans too? The Gentiles? Yes, he did. But this is not exaggeration because Peter, remember, in the garden before Jesus' arrest, what was he doing? Wielding a sword and he cut off Melchus's ear when the time came when Jesus was going to be arrested. Peter, you know, in his bravado, Lord, I'll never leave you. All oh, these guys will. And so to prove himself... When the time finally came where Jesus was arrested, he's going to prove something to everyone and to himself. He's going to pull out the sword, and I don't think he was going for Malchus's ear. I think he was going for his head. And thank God, Malchus probably glanced at the last second, and instead of chopping his head off, it got his ear, sliced it right off. And John, I love it, John's gospel is the only gospel that says that Peter did that. All the other gospels don't mention it, but John mentions it, I love it. If you have a best friend, that's what best friends do. They point out things like that. And they were no doubt close. Yeah, it was Peter. He's the one who chopped his ear up. You know. But Jesus knew that withdrawing was the best thing to do. It's been said that the best battle is the one that you can walk away from. Isn't that true? It is. But notice in verse 15 that he healed them all. At that time, he healed them all. When the Bible says things like this, we have to take it at his word because the Holy Spirit is very choosy about every single word that's written in here. In the original language, in Greek and Aramaic, he was very specific about the words he chose. He moved upon these men as they were writing these things down. And notice, Jesus didn't heal everyone that was around him all the time, but there were times that he healed all who were present, and this was one of them. And maybe you're here today thinking, you know, Lord, why haven't you healed me? Well, the Lord hasn't healed many people. He chooses to heal some, and you know, it's good to pray for healing. And I don't understand why He heals some and He doesn't heal others. But I can tell you this that God's got a big, 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 big plan. And sometimes that plan is for us to go through difficulty because there's a plan involved. And he knows every single person that's around you. He knows exactly what that illness, what that setback is going to do, not only to your heart, but also to those who are peering in, looking at you, the Christian suffering. What are you going to do when that happens? And how are you going to respond? God knows how you're going to respond. And is he reaching people even through your suffering? You better believe it. So don't ever think that God doesn't love you because he hasn't healed you like somebody else. He loves everyone. But notice in verse 16, he warned them not to make him known. Again, you know, some ministers and Christian workers, they enjoy the cameras, they enjoy the lights, they enjoy the photographs in the, in the, you know, the, the paper or the magazines, and, but Jesus didn't. When he did these things, when he healed them all, he didn't want the camera crew there. He didn't want his picture in the next magazine. He knew that his hour had not yet come. He knew there was a time that he would make himself known to Israel. And he did that, remember in Matthew 21, in the 21st chapter of Matthew, when he presented himself as he rode in on that donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9, and many other scriptures of the Old Testament prophets. He rode in. On that day, he made himself known as the king of Israel. But not until then. And Jesus had this wonderful way of just throttling his time on earth, knowing when it was time to back off, knowing when he should go forward. And only God, because he's almighty God, he has the discernment of God. He knew exactly what was happening, why it was happening. And he was able to defuse a situation or to instigate a situation. He was in complete control. He wasn't a martyr, as some would say. Jesus wasn't the poor martyr. No, he willingly laid down his life. Isn't that the Bible tells us? He willingly laid down his life. He wasn't a martyr. Greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends, and he calls you and I friends. Isn't that a wonderful privilege? I love that. But Jesus' hour had not come. So the quieter people kept his miraculous healings and signs, the quieter they were, the greater the mobility he had, and the more he could minister to them. So in verse 17 it says, And he did these things that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Notice Isaiah the prophet. This is Isaiah chapter 42, and this is what it says. Behold, my servant. Who is that servant? It's Jesus. Whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, uh, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. And he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will he hear anyone, uh, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he shall not break, a a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Yes, quoting from Isaiah, that's the whole purpose of this gospel account is to prove through even the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David, the rightful king for the right throne at the right time. And notice in verse 18 here, we have this wonderful uh, thing here. Uh, You can see the Trinity in verse 18 The Trinity, yes, we talk about the Trinity, the Father, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Who is speaking in this this passage when, when it says, when he's quoting Isaiah there, you know, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Who's speaking? It's God the Father. Who is my servant? It's speaking of Jesus. And then he says, I put my spirit upon him. Do you see the Trinity right there in verse 18? Many other places. I love that about the word of God. It's so rich. And he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. John was the herald, the town crier, if he will, to prepare. He was the voice to prepare people for Christ's coming. And a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. When a reed is bruised, the world will just cast it away. They say that the scribes would actually, when they were translating or transcribing uh, the scriptures, what they would do is they would often take a reed. A reed was a, a plant, uh, and it was, uh, it was fairly thick and, and pretty rigid, and they would sharpen the ends of it, and then they would put it in their ink quill or whatever it is that they were writing with, and they would use that. But over time, the tip began to be flexible because it got so saturated with the ink it began to to bend and so the world just like this example they just toss it out and grab another one and do you feel like that broken reed sometimes or that bruised reed you're just hanging on by a thread and the world is like there's no mercy very little mercy in the world you're feeling horrible you're feeling down and what does the devil do what does the world do it kicks you off to the curb You've served 20 years in this company. You're done. Here's your little pen. Get out of here. We used to have like a a, a luncheon where the whole group got together. Well, that's too much money. You're out of here. Get. (laughs) The world doesn't care. But Jesus cares. Jesus cares about you and me. If you're feeling broken, if you're feeling bruised, if you're feeling like a cast off, well, guess what? You're in great company because... Don't we all feel that way from time to time? And I'm so glad that the Lord doesn't throw me away. He doesn't throw you away. Jesus loves to take something that's broken or deemed useless and make it brand new and useful again. In verse 21 it says, And in his name Gentiles will trust. Yes. What? Uh, in, in his name the Gentiles will trust? Yes. Yes. God has a heart for the Jews, but um, but not just for them, but for all of mankind. How great would Jesus be as our Savior if He was only the Savior for the Jews and not the rest of us? What did the angel of the Lord say to the shepherds out in the field when the birth of Jesus was announced? Do you remember what he, what the angel said to the the, the shepherds? It says. When the angel, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Notice all people. And the word there, people, is not just the local people. It means a nation, that, you know, nations, people in general, all people. It's for all people, this good news. He's not just a Jewish Messiah. No, he is the Messiah, the Savior of the entire world. And what does John 3.16 say? Does it say, for God so loved the Jews that he gave his only begotten son? No. It says, for God so loved the world, the world, everyone in it. You and I, Gentiles. But he's not just a savior for the Jews, but for us all. In Romans, it tells us, Paul says to them, he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, speaking of the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And he's speaking of the Jews, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You know, it is written. Then he goes on, but do you see? It's for the Jews and for the Gentiles in that order, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And God spoke to the Jews. They had the word of God. They had the prophets. But we know, as we're going to see today, they rejected him. On a, on a, not only on an individual level, the, the nation rejected Christ from this point that we're looking at today. They rejected him individually and nationally. All the religious leaders were bent on now on killing him, getting rid of him. And as a result of their rejection of him, he rejected them because he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts. And that's important to understand. But it was, we are, as it says in Romans, we are that wild olive tree that was grafted into the cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. We were grafted in And remember on the day of Pentecost Peter said in Acts chapter 2 verse 39 he says when he spoke that message where 3000 people got saved he says for the promise is to you and to your children and he's speaking to the Jews and all the Gentiles that were there and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord will call that includes us it's not just a Jewish faith it is a a world faith for everyone open to everybody Now between verses 21 and 22, there were about 15 different events in the life of Jesus that occurred. So some time has lapsed between verses 21 and 22. Now, I'd have you look at verses 24... Uh, in this chapter. Look at verse twenty four because it's important as we read this that you understand who Jesus is speaking to. Whenever you read the Bible, you might have to back up to find out who is it that he's speaking to. Is he speaking to his disciples? Is he speaking to the, the scribes and the Pharisees? Who is he speaking to? And it's worth going back because if you're like me, I get tunnel vision and, and I and I read the Bible and then I forget who the context of this, of, of what's happening. And so look in verse 24 and underline the Pharisees. He's speaking, remember, to the Pharisees. And then look over in verse 38 as well. You're going to see in verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So who was Jesus speaking to throughout all of this chapter here? Or at least through verse 45 the scribes, and the Pharisees. Remember this because it's important as we go. But notice in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both saw and uh, spoke. And when Jesus healed the man, he didn't just um, heal his vision and his speech and allow the demon to remain in him. No, he healed all three. He, he, he was the total package. And th- there, this seems to imply that demon possession can can manifest itself in someone being blind, mute, or even being paralyzed or even deaf. And of course, if someone is blind or deaf or paralyzed, it doesn't mean that they are demon-possessed, but those can be some of the symptoms of those who are demon-possessed. In verse 23, it says, and all the multitudes were amazed when they saw this and and they said, could this be the son of David? And the son of David, as you remember, is a messianic title referring to Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. When the angel of the Lord referred to, was talking with Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, what did he tell him? How did the angel of God address Joseph when he was confused about all that was going on? He said, Joseph, son of David. He did that for a reason to remind him, do you remember the Old Testament prophecies? Do you remember Genesis 49 verse 10? Do you remember Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 through 16 when God spoke to David and gave him the Davidic covenant saying that from your seed shall, you know, um, your seed shall be blessed and, and, and out of your seed will come the Savior, the one who would reign forevermore. That was the Davidic covenant. Do you remember that, Joseph? It's important that you know this because if you don't, Joseph, if you don't get what I'm trying to tell you, what I'm going to tell you next is not going to make any sense, but there's going to be a child born to Mary whom you haven't touched yet. And Joseph was going, oh, thank God. A lot of rumors are starting to go around. She's pregnant when the ring is not even on the finger yet. Oops. He's like, Joseph, don't worry. This is the Holy Spirit's doing. And so he tells them this. So it's a messianic title. So now, verse 24, when the Pharisees heard that, heard, that heard, uh, heard it, they said, This fellow doesn't cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul was a Philistine deity, and his name literally means lord of the house. And it is a name for Satan, the prince of the devils, Beelzebul. And Beelzebub is a Jewish uh, tongue-in-cheek name for Satan as well, and his name is Lord of the Fly. Lord of the Fly. And what is the larval stage of a fly? A maggot. <laughs> so that's what the Jews thought of, of, uh, of Satan. He's a maggot. <laughs> right? But by making this statement, by making this statement that he's doing it by the prince of the devils, right then they crossed the line. Jesus knew they had crossed the line. I don't know if they knew that they had crossed the Rubicon, the point of no return, but they did, and Jesus knew it. And this is the, this is the interesting thing, and this is the scary thing, is these men, and their hardness of heart, they, they didn't know it. They didn't know it, but Jesus, notice in verse twenty-five, He knew their thoughts and said to them, "Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every kind, uh, every city or house divided against itself will not stand." Jesus knew their thoughts. Do you find that troubling? For Jesus to know your thoughts. Well, David wrote a psalm, and I'd encourage you to read the entire thing, but what does it tell us in Psalm 139? This will either make you feel really comfortable or make you want to run out in hives and break out in hives. But this is what Psalm 139 says, a psalm of David. And he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand, notice, my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and you've laid your hand on me. And David was so blown out by this understanding, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I can't attain it. God, you know my thoughts. You know what I'm going to say tomorrow at noon? Right on the dot, he's going to know if I'm keeping my mouth shut or what word I'm going to speak next. He could tell me right now. He could tell you right now. And there's something about that that, as a believer, is very comforting. And why? Because if he knows what I'm going to speak and how I'm going to stick my foot in my mouth tomorrow around noon, and I probably will, and he still loves me today, What does that say about his grace? Because you and I, if you knew somebody was going to speak badly about you or sin or something with their mouth the very next day, I'd punish you now for it. I know what you're going to do, and you know what? As a preemptive measure, I'm going to spank you publicly, right? (laughs) It's going to go out on Twitter and YouTube, you getting spanked. No, but God doesn't do that. He knows our thought, and is he gracious and kind? He is. So David, a believer in God, knew this. He knew that his thoughts were known by God, and yours and mine are as well. You see, we can't hide from God. And why would you hide from God? I don't want to hide from God. I spent most of my life, or at least 24 years of my life, hiding from God, thinking that He didn't see the things that I was doing. He didn't see my alcohol binges. He didn't see my infidelity. He didn't see all of these other things. These all this junk in my life. He didn't see. You know, I thought that he didn't see any of it. You know, you can't hide from God. So don't try. The darkness and the light are the same to Him. You can turn off the lights. You can go in a building where nobody sees you. No cameras. He still sees. But if Satan casts out Satan, verse 26, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The answer is, it wouldn't stand. This would be like Dunkin' Donuts selling Starbucks coffee and telling everyone to go, to their, go check out their new seasonal drinks. It would be like McDonald's giving out coupons for half price Whoppers for Burger King. It would be like Joe Biden campaigning for Donald Trump. It's just not going to happen. To do any of these would be detrimental to your cause and suicide to your business." So why would the Satan be against himself? Jesus said, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. And this did happen. In Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 49, it says that John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons, notice, in your name, which is good, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. He's not part of our group. He's not part of our clique. He can't be a part of us you got to be either with us or not. Or you know, If you're not with us, you're against us. <laughs> but Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against me is on our side. He's casting out demons in my name. Leave him alone. He doesn't have to be with our group. He doesn't have to run with the 12. You know, it's not like we're a gang. Roaming East L.A. No. Later on, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, it tells us in Acts 19 that there was some Jewish exorcists that were casting out demons too, and, and a man who had seven sons of Sceva who did the same thing, and they got into trouble because of their, uh, uh, you know, th- they weren't doing it in the right way, but there were people exercising demons in Jesus' name. Verse 28, he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Underline kingdom of God. Underline that. The very first time we see this in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 6. The very first mention of this phrase, kingdom of God, in Matthew 6, verse 33, it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus and you're born again of the Spirit, the kingdom of God is within you. Wouldn't you agree? The kingdom of God, the Spirit of God is in you, and you see the kingdom of God at work when the Spirit of God is moving. We often use this phrase, well, you know, have you ever done this? When something happens, you says, well, that was the Lord. We're recognizing the kingdom of God at work. When you, go through the, when you go through the traffic light out here and a car zings by you, just literally you can almost hear their bumper grazing your bumper on the back at like 100 miles an hour, and you hear a ting, and you're like, that was the Lord. If I would have paused for one second, one millisecond, I'd be toast. I'd be in a horrible accident. That was the Lord. You recognize God was doing something. He was preserving you, Right? We often use that phrase to bring attention to something when God is at work. We see these works are these things, and this is the kingdom of God at work. Remember when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter three, he says to Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He would certainly go on and say, whoever is not born again cannot enter the kingdom of God, but he says, whoever is not born again cannot see, can't perceive it, you can't even understand it, but we understand it. When we see things happening We're like, we're perceiving, we're discerning clearly that God is at work here when something really crazy happens. And it's wonderful. God is working. So the kingdom of God is anywhere where Jesus is and where the Holy Spirit is working and moving. Jesus in Luke's gospel says this. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you, literally in your midst. I'm standing right here, guys. Jesus would say to them, the kingdom of God is here. He's among you. He's in your midst. And if you're born again, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of heaven, by contrast, is a literal, physical place. And the Old Testament prophets talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not specifically talking about heaven, like where we go as believers when we die, or when the rapture occurs, we go up to heaven. I'm talking specifically about the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ comes back in his second coming, when he comes physically to the earth. That thousand-year kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. As you look through the passages where it speaks of kingdom of heaven, you realize those passages make sense, especially in the millennium. This messianic, Davidic kingdom that the prophets Isaiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and many others talk about. Verse 29, he says, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? If you're going to break into someone's home, you first have to deal with the man of the house, don't you? And pray that he doesn't have a gun permit, or pray that he doesn't have a shotgun by his bed, fully loaded and ready to go. But if you're going to break into that house, you've got to deal with that man. You've got to bind the strong man before you steal the rest of his goods. You have to do it. And this is what Satan does when a person gives themselves over to Satan. When they refuse God, they refuse God, and and he takes control of the person, he influences them. But in this case, as we're looking at, beginning in verse 22, Jesus comes and he binds and evicts Satan from this man's life. Thus healing the mute and the blind man. And remember that Jesus is all powerful. He is all powerful, stronger than Satan. Remember, Satan is a created being. You might wanna, hello? Jesus calling? He's probably saying, Rob, will you get it to the point? (laughs) Read Ezekiel 28. Verses eleven through fifteen, Ezekiel twenty-eight, verses eleven through fifteen. You don't have to go there, but write this down because I want you to see this. Because if you don't understand that that Satan, Lucifer was his original name, he is a created being. He is not equal with God. He is not equal with Jesus. The Mormons believe that Satan or uh, Lucifer and Jesus are, are are brothers or that they're equal. But the, you know, and it's not the yin and the yang where there's got to be a you know white and a and a black and it's all got to balance. No. There's none of that nonsense. God is all-powerful. Satan is a created being. God is the only one who is uncreated. He's always been. Read it for yourself, though. Don't believe me. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 15, it says, In the day that you were created, he's a created being. He's no match for Jesus. And a believer in Jesus Christ cannot be possessed by the devil or a demon. I believe that with all my heart. What does it tell us in John's gospel? In 1 John, I'm sorry, 1 John is his letter. He says, You are not of, uh, or you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, speaking of these who have the spirit of Antichrist. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As a believer, who is in you? Yes, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. He's in you. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You don't need to worry about the devil in the world because you've got the witness of Christ, Almighty God in you. Nobody can touch you. They might be able to touch you physically, but that's all they can do. Aren't you glad that they can't take your salvation? You can kill this body, and many saints over the years have been killed, and they're in glory, and they're very happy. They're very glad where they're at. You could could almost ask them and say, "Would, would you like to come back to earth for a little while? No thanks. I went through that once. I didn't like the process. But now I really love what's happening now. So, no thank you. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. In Mark's gospel, there's a passage in Mark chapter 9, verse 38, that seems like a contradiction, but it's not. It says in Mark 9, verse 38, Now John answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. And Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. So this passage here um, where Jesus says, for he who is not against us is on our side is referring to service. He's not against us he's speaking in my name, but the passage in verse 30 in our text this morning is speaking concerning salvation. Jesus even goes further and qualifies it by saying, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So he's drawing a very clear distinction between those who are either gathering with him or scattering. And there's a big difference. One is saved, one is not. And it's speaking of the internal reality, the salvation of the person. This word scattered is a really interesting term. It's a, it's a Greek word, scorpizo, and it literally means to dissipate, uh, to take flight or to waste. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. He dissipates, he wastes, he, takes, he puts it to flight. And this immediately reminded me of John chapter 10. Remember Jesus and turn there to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. You know, often I'm spoon-feeding you with stuff on the screen and I want I want you to get used to, you know, I know I know you read your Bibles and stuff, but to actually open them up in church is really good. But look at John chapter 10, where Jesus was speaking of the Good Shepherd. It says, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And see, the Pharisees who are calling Jesus this imposter, claiming that he was being led by the the devil himself. Notice what Jesus says who he is. He is the good shepherd. Most assuredly, I say this is verse 7 in John chapter 10. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, i.e., the scribes and the Pharisees. But the sheep did not hear them, but I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But the thief does not come to, but to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he goes on in verse twelve, in, you know, or 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. There's the same word that we saw in our text in verse 30. He does the same thing. A hireling, a wolf, scatters, but Christ gathers. They were to be the under shepherds, these scribes and Pharisees, but instead they were getting rich off the people of God. Now, although the context of verses 22 through 30 are speaking of a man who was healed from demon possession and from being blind and mute, and concerning the blasphemy of the Pharisees by saying that Jesus did this by the power of Satan himself, that is what we just looked at is, in context, correct. However, I'd like to take a spin on this just while I've got an occasion to do so. And I'd like to just mention a few things not concerning. We look at a divided house. A divided house cannot stand, but I'd like to speak to you not concerning a divided house, but one that is unified. One that is unified. Psalm 133 tells us Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. Not creating division. You know, we ought not allow politics to destroy our unity in Christ. But our homes and the church are much more effective when we dwell together in unity. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us that, For as the body is one and and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And then verse 15, if, I, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, then I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Well, the answer is, of course it is. We're many members, but one body, and not one part of the body is more important than the other. And that's why we're so thankful for the unity that we have in this fellowship. We see so many people with different skills and abilities stepping forward to be a part of the body with those different abilities and graces that God has given them. You know, carpenters, painters, electricians, musicians, masons, those who have the gift of administration, graphic artists, photographers, mechanics. It's wonderful when the body is together and helping each other out when we can. But let's not seek to be unified at any cost either. Let's not seek to be unified at any cost either. What do I mean by that? Well, there are times that it's good to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You can love an unbeliever, you can be their friend, but to get into a business partnership, you better be really careful, and especially if you decide to marry one, you better be especially careful. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? A different nature is in one than the other. The Spirit of God dwelling at one and the Spirit of the world dwelling in another. I'm not talking about demon possession here. I'm just talking about a different governing spirit. Spirit of the world. And what communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then he tells them in verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. There it is. Sometimes it's good to be separate. A house divided. Cannot stand. Moms and dads, pray for the peace of your house, the unity within your home, between you and your spouse, between you, parents, and your kids. It may require sacrifice, but it is so worth it. What does it tell us in Ephesians? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for which is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth, because if you don't, they're going to kill you. No, just kidding. There's a promise there. Obey your parents, and you will do well. And fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Bond servants, employees, be obedient to those who are masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, insincerity of heart, not with eye service, but doing uh, the will of God from the heart. And masters or employers, do the same things to them. Let's look at verse 31, and then we're going to take communion in a few moments here. But this passage here in verse 31 through 32 is perhaps one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, and I hope I can help with it this morning. Prayed about this area of Scripture and looked into it from many sources. Notice what it says in verse 31. Remember I said to underline who Jesus was speaking to in the beginning? Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, right? This is what this passage is about. Now try to refrain. I mean, there's, there's truths that are universal, and then there's things that we're God is speaking specifically to an individual. And we have to be careful that we look at the context first and then see if it fits other, uh, elsewhere too. But you got to look at the context because that is the most important thing you do. And see, that's where cults go astray. They, they, they take a passage of Scripture and you can, you can uh, take anything out of the Bible and make a doctrine out of it. There's an old phrase that says, if you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. You can make anything say what it wants. But if you put it in context and you're honest, you gotta, then there's, there's one way to look at this. Jesus said, therefore I say to you, and who is he speaking to? You notice this because of verse 24 and verse 38, to the Pharisees. He's speaking to them. He's speaking to them at that moment. He says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Notice he is speaking to the Pharisees. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And again, no doubt the most difficult verse of the Bible because no one wants to commit it. Many of saints have been tortured, they've tortured themselves over this verse For over several hundreds of years, they've done this. And even unfaithful ministers and preachers have beaten their sheep with this verse and use it to manipulate them. Now, some have said that this unpardonable sin is not possible today. Now, bear with me, and I believe this, and I'll share with you why. It is possible for some, but not for what you think it is. So some have said that this unpardonable sin is not possible today because Jesus is not physically present. Meaning that those who saw and experienced the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus' sinful life were the only ones who were culpable for this particular sin. And notice he's speaking directly to them. Remember, they had rejected him. They had crossed the Rubicon, that point of no return. And only God knew it. I don't think that they knew it, but Jesus knew that they had crossed the line. And when he speaks this to them, he's basically saying, you guys have condemned yourselves and there's no turning back. And he knows the heart. I don't know that. I don't even know that about myself. They were culpable for this particular sin. Why? Well, they disregarded his lineage. The scriptures were filled with stuff about where Jesus came from, the places that he would be, and the things that he would do. They disregarded the Old Testament scriptures that pointed directly to him. In the volume of the book, it is written of me that he said. And they disregarded the testimony of his sinless life and the miracles that he did that none could deny. None could deny it. They were so culpable, and on top of that, to disregard all of this, there was no excuse for them because they had an abundance of light. They had an abundance of proof and evidence. They were 100% culpable for their misunderstanding. They had been given much. To whom much is given, much is required. They knew, and they rejected him. They crossed the Rubicon, and there was no hope for them. They were doomed Because they rejected Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they were doomed. Mark's gospel gives even greater clarity. It says, assuredly, I say to you, and again, this is the parallel verse of this. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemes, blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Why? And it says right there, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So they were speaking directly to him, and he says, "You guys have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and you've gone over the line." And see. Again, I don't know the line. There were many times in my life and in your life that people shared the gospel with me and I am so glad that God got a hold of me somehow because there could have been a time where my heart could have gotten so hard and I would have been like, I am not going any further. And the Lord says, okay, I've made so many overtures to you. And see, you and I don't know when that, where that is. And that's why it's never good to flirt with that at all. As an unbeliever, notice I said as an unbeliever, you don't want to flirt with where that is because we don't know where that line is. The Pharisees didn't know where that line was, but Jesus says, you've crossed the line. And he was right and just to say, there is no hope for you. Clearly, people today have attributed the working of the Holy Spirit to Satan, and they've gotten saved, and they've led fruitful Christian lives. So this seems to be something more for us today, to mean something deeper, because now Christ has been crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven. But the religious leaders, they were at that point of no return. They did cross the line. In their unbelief, they rejected Christ, not only as individuals, but also on a national level. And at this time, they had crossed the Rubicon. They'd crossed it. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he spoke to them again in John chapter 8. And what did Jesus say to the scribes and the Pharisees? After they had completely rejected him, he said to them, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Do you hear that? He already knew they had crossed the Rubicon, the point of no return. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You will die in your sin. Because he knew that their decision had been made, and only God knows that. Only God knows that. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And maybe there was even a possibility for some of those in the crowd But this unpardonable sin is willful, persistent unbelief in Christ and rejecting the overtures of the Holy Spirit, so much so that the heart makes its decision and ultimately dies in that state, at which point there is no hope. But I want to encourage you that if you're a believer in Christ, I don't believe you can commit this sin today. The Spirit of God is in you. You're one of His. Are you going to make mistakes? Are you going to sin? Yes. But if you're not a believer, it is possible for you to commit this unpardonable sin. Again, you may have, as an unbeliever, you may have had several opportunities to receive Christ in your life, and you've shunned each one of them. And circumstances and life choices can harden your heart to the point where there's no going back. So I, don't, I, don't ever, I never wanted to get to that place, and I didn't even know if I was in that place. Only God knows. So as a believer, you don't have to worry about committing the unpardonable sin. Why would you play Russian roulette with your eternity and continue to shun God's overtures of grace to you? Because ultimately, when you take your last breath, that really is the unpardonable sin. When you have taking your last breath and you still have rejected Christ to the end, that, there's no hope. But the scripture seems to intimate that there is a point in an unbeliever's life where their heart gets so hard and unwilling to yield to God. And regardless of the overtures that God makes, he just keeps, and then finally they say, I am done with you. I don't want anything to do with you. And God help the man who gets that place, that man or woman. And then, you, there's, and then your heart is hook, line, and sinker. And you might not even know it. But is it possible for you to turn? Yes, there is. I, I really believe that if a heart is really looking and seeking God, but it's a dangerous place, folks. And do you want to mess around with that funny area in there where I don't even know if my heart is hardened beyond repair? I don't want to get to that place. In fact, if you're not a believer today, the best thing to do is to drop on your knees and to confess your sin and receive Jesus Christ. He loves you tremendously. He loves you. But we have to take him at his word. I believe it's that simple, if it is simple but rejecting the spirit of God, rejecting Christ as the unpardonable sin. When you take your last breath, does that make sense? But Jesus knew these men's hearts. He says, you've crossed the line and you will die in your sin. And they hated him the more for it and ultimately it would lead him to a cross. My wife and I are going to sing a song for communion, and while we do, please come on up and grab the elements and bring them back to your, bring them back to your chair, and then we'll take it together, okay? Lord, this morning as we take these tokens, Lord, we're very aware of what these mean, Lord, in that night that you had your last supper with your disciples before you were arrested, you took the bread and you broke it, and you said, this is my body broken for you. And Lord, we we recognize that, Lord, even though your body was broken and the horrible event of the crucifixion was torturous and, and ugly, Lord, we know that there was more to that scene than just your physical Torture, Father. There was, you literally took the sin of every human being upon yourself, making yourself an atonement, becoming sin for us, being the sin bearer, Lord, that we might not ever see death, eternal damnation, but Lord, we would see. You, Jesus, for eternity. And Lord, because of your death on the cross, you've made this all possible for us. And so we do this in in remembrance of you. And by taking these elements, the bread symbolizing your body that was broken and certainly the, the, the grape juice symbolizing the blood that you shed on the cross, Lord. These things, you've made it possible. You've tore the veil in the temple, giving us access to the very holy of holies, And so we take this in thanksgiving and we take it in remembrance of you. Let's partake. And Lord, just to think that whatever love we have for you, Lord, to know that you love us even more. Lord, it just makes everything so much sweeter. Lord, uh, for your love. We thank you for your love, Jesus. It's unlike any other love. Lord, your love is is wonderful, Lord. So we thank you for that. Pray that you'd be with us today, Lord, that you'd strengthen our faith and just send us out from here. Lord, just filled and encouraged, Lord, drawing closer to you every single day, and we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you.